0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Good morning, Word of Life. It's great to be able to come and be a part of service with you this weekend. So here at the church, we have a private Christian school. Um, It's been running for 20 years now. Uh, Pastor Fred Driscoll is um, our administrator and principal and doing a wonderful job. Uh, I have a personal love for the school because I have twins that are in fourth grade. And a few times a week, they have um, chapel service. And so every once in a while, it's not possible every week, but I like to go over and just kind of gate crash um, the chapel service that they have. And I got to tell you, it is the single best way to start your day. You go in, and these just see a bunch of dozens of kids just worshiping, and then just to get a bunch of um, great Bible teaching. It's just a really blessed way to start the day. I took a couple of pictures with my phone. So this is the worship uh, that they have. You'll see Pastor Annie um, leading everyone, bopping up and down. That was awesome. And then Pastor Lisa taught a lesson on um, Abraham and the Tower of Babel. I remembered Pastor Lisa. I took notes. And uh, is awesome. So I'm really grateful for all the work that goes into making the school happen. It really is a, an absolutely great ministry of the church. Um, and then also on Wednesday, a uh, life youth, um, they gathered the high school students and they went all around Baldwinsville in the village area and offered to rake leaves from uh, the neighbors' yards. And so there they are in action. Look at them go. They're moving so quick, they're blurry. <laughs> and. But I'm so glad that we're able to be a blessing to the community, and that it's really important that the, the community knows that there is a church that cares about them. There is a church that wants God's best for you, and that we're on your side, and we want to do what we can to serve you. So I'm really grateful for the students uh, for being a part of that. So for today, um, we're going to look at one of the parables of Jesus. And Jesus, he taught many parables, and it was to help people understand what it means to follow him and uh, the part of the kingdom that he was establishing. What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? What is it like to follow me? And the Bible records around 40 parables or stories that Jesus shared, and we're going to look at one that frequently comes to my mind, and I believe that for us today it has something helpful for us. So we're going to be in Luke 18, and starting in verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Now, before we look at the story, I wanna just go over a few things that I think are helpful for us as we get into this parable. Firstly, we're already told from the verse that we just read what the problem is that Jesus is addressing. Jesus is addressing the problem of people who are self-righteous, people who scorn and judge and condemn and belittle and despise others. So we know from the outset why Jesus is telling this story, and it's to correct this kind of thinking. Secondly, Jesus is teaching this important lesson by telling a story. Now, often these are called parables. Teaching something with a story is a long-standing practice that we even see in the Old Testament. And a parable is a story that you would share to prove a point or teach something, and usually they would have an unusual element or a surprise or a twist. We see something unexpected in the parable of the prodigal son. The father, he doesn't disown the son for his wayward living, but rather welcomes him back, and consequently, we learn something about the love of God. In the parable of the sower, the crop yields a hundredfold return, which is impossible, naturally speaking. And this teaches us something about the impossible transformation that God is wanting to do in the lives of believers. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's shocking and completely unheard of that a Samaritan would help. The Samaritans were despised and vilified. No one expected a story where the Samaritan would be the good guy. But we learned something compelling about loving our neighbor. And the parable of the lost sheep, what kind of irresponsible shepherd would leave 99 sheep to find just one that had gone wayward? But we learn something about the overwhelming, shocking, dramatic love that helps us understand the love Jesus has for us, the good shepherd himself. And thirdly, the way Jesus taught and incorporated parables is that all of his teaching builds together. It would be impossible to take just one or two parables and shape a full understanding about the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus. But if we take all of his teaching together, we can form a worldview and have a rich and life-changing understanding. And we just read that Jesus is teaching this to people who are confident of their own righteousness. So much so that they scorned and looked down on the people who didn't measure up to their standards. They had a strong sense of what it means to live in a right relationship with God and a firm belief about what it meant to be righteous. They had an idea of what the goal was. They trusted that they knew what the target was supposed to be and they unflinchingly aimed at that target and believed they hit the bullseye every time. There were many interactions that Jesus had with the Pharisees that showed that they were aiming at the wrong target. This parable is one of the many instances we have where Jesus redefines what the right and proper target should be for people who want to follow him. Let's read this parable together, starting in Luke 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, "Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, the word exalted, it's somewhat strange, and it's not a word that we would typically use on a day-to-day basis. It means the, the way forward, the way to invite God's blessing on your life, the way to succeed in life. It's how we get ahead. And it's not found by pushing our way to the front. It's not found in dominating people. It's found in humility. Being exalted is found in putting other people first. Being exalted is found in acting with integrity and honesty and with strong character. God's blessing and promotion follows the humble, not the proud. In explaining this parable, Jesus tells us that pride and self-righteousness and belittling others leads to problems. We all know the saying that pride comes before a fall. We may not know or may not realize that it originates from the Bible and it's from the book of Proverbs. But each of us have seen this principle at play over and over again. Whether a politician, celebrity, athlete, an annoying co-worker, neighbor, pride comes before a fall. And we've all seen it played out many, many times. In the parable, we're given two examples, and we're going to walk back through the passage in just a moment. And we'll see that the twist, the unexpected element in this parable is that it was the Pharisee that got it wrong, and the dreaded despised tax collector got it right. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you'll know that the Pharisees are portrayed as the bad guys. But as we'll look at more, 2,000 years ago, they were held in the highest esteem and with the greatest respect. Conversely, on the flip side, the tax collectors were the ones who were villainized and despised the tax collector being the role model, and the Pharisee getting it wrong would have shocked and even offended the people Jesus was talking to. Now, because we're familiar with the story of Jesus, we know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, but this was highly unexpected. But at a very surface reading, we should come to the conclusion that what is being applauded and what is being condemned in the parable is not behavior, but an heart and an attitude. Verse 14 again, I tell you, this sinner not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What we should be aiming at is humility and a desperation from God, the kind that is demonstrated by the tax collector. You and I need the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God on our worst day just as much as our best day. And if we believe that, there's not much room left for pride. And yet the temptation continues to hold the Pharisees in high esteem and desire to be like them and be justified in our pridefulness. Simply put, this is the wrong goal. Aspiring to be like the Pharisees, that's the wrong target. Having confidence in your own holiness and being able to confirm that you are indeed spiritually superior to the rest of us is not the goal. From the parable, the goal is a quiet and sincere acknowledgement of God I need you the right target is admitting that I desperately need a Savior on a good day just as much as I desperately need a Savior on a bad day Jesus freely gives his grace freely gives his forgiveness and his love and the promise of eternal life and it is correct and appropriate that we spend our entire lives amazed at the love of God the right target is is a lifetime of humble gratitude for grace and the love of God. My friends, aim at the right target, a lifetime of humble gratitude. Aim at the right target, a lifetime of humble gratitude. Now, out of all the things that we can take from this parable, that one that stood out to me most, and I wonder if it needs to be at the front of our minds as we walk through this parable, we will do in a moment. But it was heavy on my mind this week that There might be many believers and many people here today that follow Jesus. And they believe that following Jesus means aiming to be a Pharisee. There's people who are following Jesus possibly for years, maybe even a recent decision, but they have an awareness of where I am right now is not where I should be. There's a a stretching that should be happening. There are areas where I'm falling short. There's sin that continues to come up in their lives. And they believe that there is something else that they should be aiming for. And the apparent superiority of the Pharisees, it makes sense to admire. Today, of course, we we don't have literal Pharisees, but that mindset is very present. The idea that how well we behave determines how much God loves us. The notion that people admiring us for our superior spirituality is the key to everything. The deep craving for recognition, looking down on other people for not measuring up. I've seen this show itself in a bunch of different ways over the years. A few examples that stood out, and it's not talking about anybody in this room, of course. But I was talking to a couple one time, and their marriage was in a very rough shape for a lot of different reasons, and as they're sort of listing the grievances that they have with each other, the husband sort of was furious at his wife because he'd spent money on a really nice, wonderful study Bible, and he'd given it to her. But for convenience sake, she found it easier to read the Bible on the Bible app on her phone, And he was furious that his wife would dare read the Bible from a cell phone and not the paper Bible that he'd given her. I commented to a lady once that church attendance had increased in the weeks following the release of the Passion of the Christ. And she said, yeah, but is it true repentance? I've heard horror stories of people desperate for help and desperate to start piecing their life back together, and when they turn up to a church someone criticizes how they're dressed because apparently it's too casual for God. My friends, this is not the right target. This is not reflective of Jesus' priorities. So a question I put to you is what is the right target to aim for? What is the right target to aim for? We're going to walk through the parable and we'll take a little piece of the time and we'll stop and we'll think and consider what it is that Jesus is teaching. But back to verse 9, then Jesus told this story. To some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. So, our first question I put to us and kind of arranged it this way as a way to sort of try and get my thoughts on the page is that who are the Pharisees and who are the tax collectors? Who are the Pharisees, who are the tax collectors? Well, the tax collectors. These were local people that worked in conjunction with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had conquered Judea at the time of Jesus, and the number one purpose of the empire was to gather as many taxes from the provinces and cities in the empire as possible. Now, collecting taxes is somewhat of a balancing act because you don't want to tax the people too much and starve them to death today because then they can't pay taxes tomorrow. But you want to get as much out of them as you possibly can. So the Romans would recruit local people to be tax collectors. It's not exact, but it's also not a million miles away from like a franchise. So if you can imagine like different towns and different provinces, they'd have like almost like a franchise option to be a tax collector. And so local people would come forward, and they would bid on having the right to be the local tax collector. Now to be a tax collector, it meant collecting all the taxes that Rome required from you Plus they were able to charge extra to keep for themselves and the Roman army would back them up if someone didn't pay So the tax collectors were local people who were known and a part of the community who would abandon their people Tax them within an inch of their life and use the threat of the Roman military to make sure that they became very very wealthy the modern example as I try to piece this together is if you can imagine someone you went to school with Decided that they would go and work for the IRS, and you owed the IRS five thousand dollars. And the local tax collector, someone you grew up with, someone you went to synagogue with as a child, someone who you've known all your life, your parents or friends, and this person knocks on your door and said, Hey, I know that you owe five thousand, but I want six. Like, what do you mean you want six? I want six. Don't ask questions. I'm not gonna pay you six. In that case, I've got the Marines outside and they're gonna come in and kick your door down. That is a relatively fair picture of what was happening. Someone who had completely disgraced their community. Someone who completely pushed aside all that is they'd grown up. They'd abandoned their faith, they'd abandoned their heritage, they'd completely destroyed their community, all so that they could gain wealth. To be a tax collector means ripping off your neighbors and abandoning your community. Now the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a sect or a branch of Judaism, and for the first century Jewish community, the Pharisees were held in the highest regard. They were the religious leaders. They appeared to have more influence than anyone else in Jerusalem at that time. Obedience to the scriptures for the Pharisees was seen to be of paramount importance to experience God's blessing and His favor meant adhering to the scriptures. The Pharisees were often wealthy, and that was seen as proof of God's approval. They spent their time studying and discussing scriptures. They successfully convinced themselves and everyone else that they were truly the righteous ones. And then Jesus starts teaching. And amazes everyone when he says this in Matthew 5. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are better than the best, is how people would have heard this. That's the question that would have been on everyone's mind as Jesus is teaching this in Matthew 5. How am I supposed to be better than the best? How am I supposed to reach that standard? Jesus tells us, the gospel shows us, that the Pharisees are not the target. They are not the role models. They are not our goal and aspiration for spiritual maturity. Despite all the posturing and confidence in their superiority, they've forgotten what really mattered. Matthew 23 is possibly the strongest teaching that we have from Jesus. He tears the Pharisees up and down. He calls them out, and he calls out so many despicable attitudes that they latched onto and seemingly didn't care or even realize that they were contrary to what God was teaching. And it didn't matter that the Pharisees got it so wrong, and Jesus gives a stern warning to them in Matthew 23. I've got a few here, but if you want to read the whole of Matthew 23, it's upsetting. But here we go, Matthew 23. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you are yourselves are. Blind guides what sorrow awaits you. For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts of the altar is blinding. How blind? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe in the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And of course... Let's not forget, it was the Pharisees who conspired with the Romans to kill Jesus. But the people Jesus is addressing, this too had, they too had born into this idea that the Pharisees were the ideal. The people that Jesus is talking to, they believed that the Pharisees had a, a level of holiness and a correct approach to God and a level of spiritual maturity. The average person agreed with the Pharisees that they were better and holier and more worthy than they were. My friends, this tragedy still happens today. Tragically, the message of grace that Jesus gave to his disciples can get muddled and misrepresented and conflated, and for many, the goal of this spiritual walk is to be a Pharisee. The ideal role model of holiness and maturity in faith is thought to be a Pharisee. We talk a lot about growing in our faith and committing to stretch in our character and in our values and behavior. We talk a lot about the importance of reading the Bible and being a part of the church community. What I expect happens for many is that there's a sense of this is where I am today, and it's not ideal, it's not the person that I'm striving to be, and in our broken humanness and our craving for achievement and accomplishment and our our need to feel justified and our insecurity driving us to feel worthy from those around us, the ideal that we believe we should pursue can look a lot like the Pharisees. The Pharisees read the Bible a lot. The Pharisees prayed and fasted. They gave money to the temple and they made a big show about how they were giving money to the poor. It's not surprising that many would believe that this is the way to live and so it becomes the target we aim our life at. And what you aim for is either what you hit or it's what you're disappointed about missing. What you aim for is either what you hit or it's what you're disappointed about missing. This is true in career goals and career aspirations. It's true in sports. It's true in family or in school or college. What you aim for is either what you hit or it's what you're disappointed about missing. So if anyone's bought into the lie that the Pharisees are the perfect spiritual role models and believe that this is the kind of faith we should aspire to, either you'll hit what you're aiming at and adopt a similar expression as the Pharisees or you'll fail in your attempts at being perfect and better than everyone else, and you'll be disappointed that you missed the mark. You'll be disappointed that you're not a Pharisee. We've just read from the parable of Jesus that the disposition of the Pharisees is not the target or the goal or the aspiration that his followers should have, and yet we still have a temptation and a pull to want to be as good, as respected, as self-assured, and as spiritually superior as the Pharisees we can still very easily believe that this is what the perfect Christian should look like. And for those who have subscribed that the Pharisees are the role models, we should all aspire to be. Some will believe they've achieved it, but many people will be very aware of how far they have fallen short. And what happens if we believe that a Pharisee is what we should aspire to be? I thought about it this week and spent some time trying to wrestle through the idea, but a handful of consequences or outcomes came to mind if we're trying to be a Pharisee, if that's what we're aspiring to be, one of the common outcomes that I believe I've seen many, many times is that we recognize we won't get there, so we settle for good enough. For other people, we'll believe that that's what we should aspire to be, and we'll fake it. For other people, they'll believe that being a Pharisee in this kind of show of affection, this prideful, driven spirituality, and we'll end up deluding ourselves that we've achieved the appropriate level of holiness. And for many... If we believe that Pharisees is the role model and we've tried and tried, for many, they'll give up on aiming for anything and they'll abandon faith. What does it look like to recognize that we won't get there and we settle for good enough? If we're trying to be a Pharisee, if we believe that's the role model, believe that this is the perfection that Jesus put in front of us and we try to pursue that and we just don't get there and we decide to settle that, well, this is good enough. Well, we come to church, we're following Jesus, we're trying to walk the life of faith, but we're also honest enough to realize our shortcomings. We know that we've gotten some habits that are destructive, we know that there's some stuff we hope no one finds out about. We know that we're supposed to do things like read the Bible and spend time praying and being a good neighbor, but it's just not quite happening. And we decide that this is good enough. We know very well that there's more, that this isn't all there is to following God, and it's not all that it's meant to be, but we also don't think we're ever going to get our act together enough. We're never going to let go of that unhealthy attitude or that destructive behavior. So we decide that this is good enough. Where I am today is good enough. I'm not as good as a Pharisee, but I'm doing okay. I at least do some of the things I'm supposed to. Me, my spirituality, my faith, my life balance, it's good enough. And worse still, maybe we fake it. We become one person at home and another at church. When it's time to be around Christian friends, we kind of flip the switch and turn it on. We watch what we say and we present our best selves to the world. Essentially, it's a Pharisee impression, it's a Pharisee Halloween costume. And whenever I talk to someone and I just get the impression that someone is being fake and trying to dial up the super Christian thing, I'm always sad. I don't know quite why people feel they can't be themselves around me. I've never thought of myself as an intimidating person, so I'm assuming it's just because of my role as a pastor, or maybe I come across as more judgmental than I realize I do. But if being a Pharisee, that outward, shallow, looks perfect, sounds perfect, prideful spirituality is what people are aiming for, when they're conscious that they haven't measured up the way they're supposed to, it makes sense that people would try to fake it. Another response is that we delude ourselves that we've achieved the appropriate level of spirituality and we end up developing pride. There are some who successfully do enough of the right things and don't do too much of the wrong things, according to their own standards, I'm sure. And this somehow opens up the habit of looking down on others. A critical disposition rises up, and oftentimes these people are negative and mean. It appears that without even trying, they keep upsetting the people around them. And tragically... I've seen other people who've given up on aiming for anything, and they abandon faith. If someone believes that the target they should be aiming for is that of a Pharisee, it's easy to understand why some people would give up. Either they think it's too difficult and they walk away in shame, or they look at the Pharisees, they don't like what they see, so they abandon their pursuit of Jesus, not because they're offended by Jesus, but because they've conflated following Jesus with turning into a Pharisee. But Jesus' remedy is to teach people that the Pharisees aren't role models at all. They are not the people to look up to. The kind of faith that Jesus is building in the lives of his followers doesn't look like the Pharisees. But in a massive shock and in a wild twist, Jesus points to a tax collector. He points to the worst of the worst and says the humility and deep hunger for God that he has is what his followers should aspire to. The second question I come through is how do we get this wrong? How do we get this wrong? Simply put, it looks right. It looks right. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, the Pharisee here is not bragging about doing evil things. He's talking about being honest and being committed to the requirements of the Bible and being faithful to his wife. The Pharisee was talking about fasting multiple times a week and giving financially towards the temple. Surely Jesus isn't against these things. It's worth pointing out that Jesus doesn't condemn his actions or his behavior, but the heart behind it. The pride that undergirds all of it is ugly. The Pharisees thrived on knowing that other people looked up to them. They were driven by an impressive knowledge of the scriptures. Their displays of holiness and even acts of charity were done publicly for everyone to see. Their determination to obey the commandments gave a deep confidence that God approved of them. And Jesus goes to great lengths to make sure his followers know this is not the goal. So what did the tax collector do right? Well, I remember what we'd read a moment ago. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. This is the Pharisee talking. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. The way that this reads is, worse than cheaters, worse than sinners, worse than adulterers, the tax collector. He is viewed as worse than all of them. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. This is a posture of humility, this awareness of how desperate we are for the grace of God the contrite request for forgiveness that shows a heart for him. He's not justifying his shortcomings. He's not belittling the severity of his actions. He acknowledges, I am a sinner, but he's ready to receive mercy. He's desperate for God to change his life. This is only possible because he's humble. And why is humble better than prideful? Luke 18, 14. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Neither the tax collector nor the Pharisees are at the finish line. Neither of them are where we would aspire to be. But the humble man has hope, because he's freely admitting he's wrong. Now, the Pharisee believes he's perfect, and if someone believes they're perfect, there's no drive towards growth or change. We've started talking a lot about committing to stretch, and if there's no sense of needing to change, there's no demand to stretch and go through the uncomfortable work of stretching. But when there's humility, the desire and hunger for change is strong and motivating. A way that this kind of made sense to me this week, I thought I'd show to the church, but if somebody has humility, then they're open and they're looking for something to address, something to change, something to correct, something to grow in. Consequently, then they find something to start fixing. And then when they've identified what it is they need to start fixing, then they commit to stretch. They commit to follow this through. And what happens? Growth and maturing. However, when someone is driven by pride, then there's nothing to address. There's nothing to fix. There's no need to stretch. And what happens? They stay stuck. In humility, there's movement. In humility, there's growth, there's a willingness to admit you're wrong, there's a desire to get better, there's an ongoing thankfulness to God. This inspires obedience, not out of duty or out of fear, but for a place of gratitude and love. Practicing the habits that will grow our faith and stretch us as a believer is done with joy, not obligation. If you aim for humility, you'll also get obedience. But if you can aim for obedience alone... You can completely miss humility. According to Jesus, we can be stuck in the wrong place and be absolutely one hundred percent convinced we're in the right place. Every believer should honestly reflect. They should pray and examine ourselves and question whether we're aiming for the right target or if we started aiming for the wrong target. And what is the right target? Well, Paul was an early church leader. And before he encountered Jesus, he was a practicing Pharisee, and even held positions of authority and had a strong level of respect from his fellow Pharisees. But that changed for Paul. His confidence changed. His understanding changed. His pride unraveled. His scorn for others became a desperation for everyone to know the grace of God, because he met Jesus. He stopped obeying because of religious duty, and he obeyed God because of his love for him. And Paul writes about this in his change of worldview to the church in Philippi. Philippians 3, starting halfway through verse 3, we put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own efforts if anyone could, if anyone wants to brag, if anyone wants to boast, if anyone's prideful, I'm telling you, I'm better than them. I did more than they did. I achieved more than they did. I was holier than they were. I stuck to the Bible better than anyone you can think of. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. All of Paul's hard work, all the effort, it did not achieve what he needed most, a healed and restored relationship with God. Jesus made that possible. Paul didn't make that possible. Paul, the perfect Pharisee, didn't make it possible. But Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, he made that possible. Paul rejected his status as a Pharisee, And he embraced the message of grace wholeheartedly. And that stands as an example for us today. How can we start to follow Jesus' teaching and to carry on Paul's example? I would say, don't wear your Sunday best to church. Wear your Sunday worst. Don't wear your Sunday best to church. Wear your Sunday worst. What I mean by that? The world out there is a tough place. We're believers. We're called to go out and make a difference. We're called to go out and be salt and light. And it's tough out there. We need to suit up. We need to go ready to face the world. In here, this is a place you can let your guard down. This is a place you can be vulnerable. This is a place where you'll meet people and you can share your struggles openly. This is a place where you don't have to have it all together. Out there, the world demands a lot of us. And we got to be ready to go. we got to be strong out there. In here, we can be okay. We can be weak and vulnerable, and we can build each other up. We can encourage each other. The uh, Megan and I, we, we just finished, and we did a, a cohort. It was a six-session uh, six program that we did with um, other Assemblies of God pastors in the area, and we would get together every few weeks, and we sort of talked through different things that are going on in our church. And I was super impressed with our time together, because one of the pastors that we met with is a great guy. He's a, I would say he's a good friend of mine. Um, he would come and when it was time to start sharing about what struggles are going on in your church, he would be right out of the gate. This is a difficulty I'm going through right now. This is a stress in my life. This is a burden I'm carrying right now. This is something frustrating I'm dealing with. This is a failure that's happening in our church right now. Now, I won't say who this is because I haven't asked if it's okay for me to share, but this is someone who holds a position of responsibility within the assemblies of God. This is someone that I look up to. This is someone that a lot of pastors in the state of New York look up to. And he was the first to say this is a struggle, this is a fight, this is a weakness, this is where I'm vulnerable. He wore his Sunday worst. I respected it so much. So oftentimes I'll I'll go to pastors' conferences, I'm going to be completely honest with you, I can feel so insecure at those things because it's amazing how put together and how all these pastors everywhere have kind of got their act together and they know everything. They've got an answer for every question and I'm kind of over here like, I don't really know. You know, they're like all figured it all out and they've kind of got their act together and I'm just kind of shrugging like oh, I kind of feel like I'm making it up as I go along a lot of the time Sunday worst, we're here together we don't need to have our front on, we don't need to present to each other that we've got it all figured out, we're here to build each other up, it's difficult to do that if we're trying to convince each other and barefaced lie to each other that we have it all figured out, we're here to build each other up Nothing I put to you is reflect on what inspires gratitude. All over the world, people and even nations celebrate holidays, and the whole purpose of holidays is to remember. We remember Christmas, to remember that God stepped into human history by becoming human to save the world. We remember Easter and remember what Jesus did on the cross and the significance of the resurrection three days later and how this changed the whole of human history. Even here in the United States, we'll celebrate various holidays like Veterans Day to remember the cost and sacrifice of our military. We celebrate the 4th of July to rejoice that us Americans don't have to live under British oppression anymore. You and your family need to remember what God has done. You need to make it a consistent practice to remember and reflect upon all that God has done, his mercy, his forgiveness, his kindness. We need to remember how messed up and broken we are, how our sin has completely disqualified us from having a relationship with God, but his love for us drove him to become the solution to the biggest problem we have. And that relationship is restored, healed, and whole, not because of us, but because of him. This remembering and reflecting, it'll start to evoke and produce a gratitude and thankfulness that cannot be shaken. Now, if we could get rid of this Pharisee attitude, if we can get rid of this lie that this is the goal of our spirituality, but instead, if we seek to have a true, honest, sincere, deep, lifelong humility and gratitude towards God, then we can grow and stretch and mature in our faith. If we put our gratitude for Jesus first, then desire and passion for obedience will naturally come. But if we put religious obedience first, what follows is pride, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, anger, and all these things are stuff that Jesus routinely shut down. And if we all start to shift our aim and find the humility that each and every one of us should have, then maybe we can break the lie that we need to be more and more like the Pharisees. And if enough of us break free from this, then maybe future generations of believers will stop believing the lie. Maybe they'll pursue a deep and sincere, life-changing relationship with God, not because they're trying to impress anyone, but because the grace of God amazes them each and every day. And if we're a community of believers that is driven by an appreciation for the grace of God, I know we'll show that grace to others. We'll share the message of Jesus and truly reflect the love he has for us. Maybe they'll believe us when we say that we hate sin because we love people and that sin ruins people's lives. Maybe we can communicate with genuine belief that repentance is not a harsh condemnation, but it's a message of hope because repentance is the promise of a future looking different than today. Maybe obedience to kingdom values and the leading of the Holy Spirit won't be seen as a heavy burden to carry, but a worthy discipline because I trust God knows best and nothing is more important than my relationship with Him and living my life in a way that honors Him. Aim at the right target, a lifetime of humble gratitude. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled those who humble themselves will be exalted. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What you aim for is either what you hit or it's what you're disappointed about missing. What happens if we believe that a Pharisee is what we should aspire to be? Well, we recognize that we don't get there, so we settle for good enough. We settle for faking it. Maybe we delude ourselves that we've achieved the appropriate level and we develop a spiritual pride. Or maybe we give up aiming for anything and abandon the faith altogether. Shockingly, Jesus points to a tax collector. A tax collector who shows a deep and sincere humility and an awareness of how desperately he needs a savior. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Where there's humility, There's the desire and hunger for change that is strong and motivating. Humility leads to growth and maturing. Humility inspires obedience and builds a passion to embrace the essentials. Humility causes us to look at others with love and kindness instead of anger and resentment. Aim at the right target, a lifetime of humble gratitude. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I have a couple of questions for you. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I hope it's helpful, but maybe this week you'll have a chance to reflect on this a little bit and pray through it, perhaps talk it over with somebody. But The first question I put to you is, have you believed that the wrong target is what we should be aiming for? Have you believed that the wrong target is what we should be aiming for? Have you believed that being able to impress everyone and doing all the right things, that that is the goal of Christianity? Have you developed a a Pharisee mindset without even realizing it? Is your confidence in yourself, are you fueled by impressing others? And my friends, please don't be quick to say no. This belief in the wrong target, it creeps in under the radar. I promise, I feel this challenge myself. But have you believed that the wrong target is what we should be aiming for? And the second question I put to you is what would true humility change about your life? What would true humility change about your life? if we took the time to reflect and remember the grace and goodness of God, if we never forgot how undeserving we are, and yet He loves us so much, what would change about your life? I invite everyone to stand with me before we go into a time of worship. I've said this before, and there's a really good chance I'll say it again. The greatest paradox in the world is that the qualification for receiving the grace of God is knowing that you do not qualify for the grace of God. The greatest paradox in the world is that the qualification for receiving the grace of God is knowing that you do not qualify for the grace of God. My friend, if someone doesn't know or understand or believe that they need forgiveness, then the message of Jesus will never make sense. But if you know, if I know, if I admit, if I'm honest that I'm a mess, broken, made mistakes, that I desperately need the grace of God, then hearing about how he gives his love and grace so generously, it is the single greatest news any of us could ever hear. And it is truly life-changing. Lord, please take something from today. Lord, the scripture verses that were read or the things that were talked about, and Lord, may some of it just register true with, uh, with everyone here today. Lord, may each and every one of us feel that challenge to stop buying into the lie that the Pharisee mindset and being spiritually superior and being able to look down on everyone and feeling like we're better than everyone else is anything worthwhile. But Lord, it's disgusting and ugly in your eyes. But Lord, may we remember that we are undeserving and yet you give so generously. And may that be our motivation. May that be our drive. May that be what moves us forward in our relationship with you. May that be our motive for stretching in our relationship with you. May that be our motive for wanting to get closer to you and to do the things that help us grow as a believer. Lord, we need your help. We need you just as much on our best day as our worst day. Lord, we love you. We honor you and we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, everyone, let's spend some time in worship together. Amen.